Hello and welcome to FuturePod. I'm Mindy Yuri. The Futures and Foresight community comprises a remarkable and diverse group of individuals who span academic, commercial and social interests. At FuturePod, we seek to honour and to learn from the wisdom of those who have established and developed our field, to connect and support the practice of those who work in this space, and most importantly, to give pathways and inspiration to those who wish to join us in creating humane and better futures for ourselves and those who come after us. Bridget Engler is a pracademic working across strategic design, innovation and foresight. A futurist, but not technically a designer, she is course director for the Master of Design program at Swinburne University, and she regularly collaborates with industry and organisations on futures-orientated projects and programs. Her work spans strategic and transformative design, speculative design, experiential and critical futures, and transition design. Bridget's research interest is the nexus created between strategic design and strategic foresight and emergent opportunities intersecting design, ecosystems, people and technology. This includes connections and interventions between design and foresight, how futures thinking and design intersect and influence, especially NGOs and the third sector, design as politics, and the opportunities emerging between civil society, foresight, and strategic design. Her PhD research explores the use of strategic foresight tools in design practice and the capacity for anticipatory thinking in design. Previous research projects include facilitating the research, strategy, and design process for REGEN, the Victorian Division of Uniting Care's Alcohol and Other Drugs Service applying strategic foresight tools as part of joint research on the possibilities and implications arising from legislative changes to cigarette packaging in Australia, and developing a design and foresight process for a Victorian regional council to win a community grant that funded a project to encourage secondary students in the development of a vehicle safety and theft prevention program. Welcome to FuturePod, Bridget. Thank you very much for asking me to be here. To begin, we'd like to ask our guests to tell a little bit about your story, how you began. What was it that drew you to futures in the first instance? I don't know that I was specifically drawn to futures. I kind of fell into it. But I think I've fallen into a lot of things. And along the way, I've learnt that I didn't really fall into things. It was where my path took me. So I, I, I think there's been a degree of emergence um, in the way I've pursued my career, for want of a better term. But really what got me towards foresight was not doing an MBA. I was looking at doing further postgraduate study. I did a master's in women's studies, which was great. And I loved all of the work that I did and I still use it pretty much every day. But it wasn't the the next thing. And I was working uh, in brand strategy and design strategy. And I was looking for something else. I was working as a consultant uh, and I thought, oh, maybe an MBA is the way to go. And then I, uh, as a lot of people know, I'm allergic to Excel spreadsheets and I'm not very good with numbers. And I figured that an MBA probably wasn't the degree for me. And at the time that I was looking, I explored a couple of other things. I happened to be working on a brief as a freelancer, uh, which was a, a brand strategy and it included name and verbal identity. 
and that uh, happened to have been faced, they're based on a foresight-oriented brief. And I found out later who wrote the brief. It was a really interesting project. It had come out of an innovation process at a very large manufacturer. And I ended up pursuing it, got another brief through the same organisation, uh, which was a design firm I was consulting with. Uh, same process or similar process had been applied and I started to ask questions. Um, I ended up meeting the client who happened to be a graduate of the Foresight program. And it was just a matter of a few things falling into place, what I now have heard Richard Slaughter talk about as the three hits. And um, I got three hits, and one of them was Steve Tai, um, who worked in innovation at Foster's, and um, that led me to discussion with a couple of other people, and I found my way to a foresight degree. It was actually Peter Hayward at the information night uh, who asked, so you know, what are you really doing? And I, I said something like, I work in brand strategy, and that's not enough, and he just smiled and thought, oh, I think he understands what I'm <laughs> hinting at. And then he asked me what I did, I explained, and he asked in the name of my company and which was a business name and um he said oh yeah that's a great and and yeah that I think I I just felt something click and then I found myself in a room with the foresight program and thought okay I'm home this is the space because I just had a lot of questions around why I was working on things that lasted no more than 60 seconds or six months in the market and it felt really uh, I was very uncomfortable with that I, it, it really compromised what I felt we could really achieve within design uh, and and even marketing, you know, helping people make better choices about things is great if they've actually got good things to choose from to start with. And I felt like there was a little bit of a gap there. Uh, and I was um, not very happy with some of the, the work I was doing and I needed a bit more depth. I got fed up with reading about trends and keeping up with the latest and thought, oh, no, there's got to be something more. And so through Steve, um, I ended up finding myself at Swinburne. Yeah. So it sounds like the design was still the primary the primary interest, but foresight gave it a lot more depth and a lot more meaning. Is that is that something depth like? and meaning, but also, and I think that's where my PhD has really started to help me explore that more. The the, the sense that design is not about creating things for short the short term. That's that sort of material culture that's emerged, and that's um, more around the the attachment to things for short term. That that has also emerged maybe in the last 15, 20 years, but it was it was the, the, the notion that design could do so much more. If I can see an organisation building a brand to last them forever uh, and, and have all of that wonderful work that goes with it, then why can't we design stuff that builds wonderful things forever for people, for non-human life forms, for our planet? And it just became a, a bigger challenge um, working on really commercial projects that felt just compromised everything. Bridget, my experience in futures was that I was encouraged to think of myself as either an ideas person or a doer as a way of identifying what path next was going to be right for me. And you describe yourself as a pracademic. <laughs> Can you... Tell us a little bit about that. How did you become a pracademic? I think it's a little bit of the post-structuralist or post-modernist in me. It's not that I rebel against being boxed, but I worked in the creative sector for a very long time without acknowledging that I was creative. Even though I was working on strategy and I was naming stuff and making up things and working in creative teams, I never fully identified as creative. And I know that I worked in ideas, and, but I also did work. I put together reports. So 
I, I struggled with being labelled as one or the other. And once I started to explore more within the, the future space, I realised that I'd probably had different things that I applied at different times. The pracademic bit, though, comes from the... So I suppose it's my way of acknowledging that I've got a lot of industry experience. I worked in design in 20 years and I was really privileged to work on some of the projects that I've worked on and with some of the organisations that I've worked with, both client and the agency or design firm. But it feels like I'm not an imposter, I've got 20 years experience and I've got three degrees, but it's the that, that practical side because I'm not the fully nerdy academic that a lot of people think. I can spout theory if you want me to, but a pracademic is the, the, the practical side of what I do. I also think it's important for academics to keep their hands dirty. Uh, we, we should be engaging in stuff that's relevant and particularly when um, I teach postgrad students, I've, I feel it's incumbent on me to have engaged in something recently um, I can't lose touch so it's kind of it's not just that academic writing theory doing papers I do a lot of research but I want it to have a sense of practice base but also that it's practical uh, that the stuff I do is is used and useful uh, and 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 has I suppose that meaning or that relevance and it has an intention with it. So as you were developing your craft, what was your work around that time? You've got a number of threads going on here. You're interested in, in the ideas, but you're also interested in the practical. And I can see that those might have supported one another. What was your work all about in that early stage and who was inspiring you? Oh, my work in the, uh, it, while I was studying, even before I even completed uh, my master's, was... Um, drawing on the foresight tools and methods and the, the thinking um, in the work that I was doing. I actually was working on a couple of projects that um, I felt really challenged by and I was able to bring the, the, the futures or the foresight approach and all that dimension of thinking into what I was doing, which was great. Uh, but a lot of the work I was doing was also strategy. So sitting in meetings, hearing people talk about what they wanted to do with their organisation in five or ten years was able to have me think, well, okay, this think about beyond 10 years because by the time we actually implement this this will kind of be yesterday so where are we going 10 years beyond so I'd already started to have that little seed I suppose or that 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 um there was an embryonic um approach within there once I'd completed the degree um I was slightly terrified for a little bit because suddenly I'm the foresight practitioner or professional futurist or you know qualified futurist whatever those things are and so it was almost like a license to to wield uh, and i i felt that it was important to not only acknowledge where i'd come from um, and the practice that i had been doing um, in my existing work and drawing on the foresight work in that but then taking it into different areas bridget what tools were your favorites as you were starting to apply some of these um, futures concepts into your um, design practice I've got a number of favourites uh, and I have, a, a, I suppose, a list of go-tos. Harman Fan is a particular favourite. I came across this when I was uh, studying and uh, found it a really easy tool to use and to get people engaged with. It's deceptively simple. Uh, you start with, um, I would, sorry, um, I was introduced to it in the classroom uh, with the background that Wendy Schultz's work has contributed, uh, but it was originally from Willis Harmon. The idea is that you are able to start building some very simple 
scenarios based around headlines. So you um, get a group of people together, they might work around a theme or a topic or a, a problem question or something like that. Uh, you ask them to brainstorm snapshots, so a bit like sound bites or headlines from the newspaper, not dissimilar to doing something like that in a causal analysis process. The idea is that you capture these kind of extreme, crazy, radical headlines based on the timeline that you're working to. And you want 22 of them because you fan them out. So uh, there's a particular frame um, over a number of uh, years that you use. So most of the time I tend to stick within 25 to 30 years. Uh, go out to 50 is not too bad depending on what it is that you're looking at. After that, it gets a bit problematic because you're not necessarily having the time or the content to really make sure that it's, it's rich and considered. But you start by saying, well, it's 2018 now, we're going out to 2038. Think of some things that m you might read as headlines over the next 20 years or 30 years uh, and um, write those down on sticky notes. Then, doesn't matter how many you've got, we've got to get it down to 22 of the most compelling or interesting or juicy or controversial or things that you just find really uh, interesting and intriguing for um, or maybe even really boring you just want the standout ones um, if you think it's too conventional it could be useful it could serve a purpose I then ask people to get all of the headlines up on a wall um, and we either then distill it down to 22 not because we're picking and choosing to craft a particular approach no one knows what they're doing quite yet but just to get it down to 22, particularly if you've got people working individually, which is my preference, that they work in silence and generate the headlines and all the, the snapshots, then bring them together and compare and contrast because that's better than brainstorming. Uh, if we do a bit of clustering to pick up both where there's similarities, it helps with getting them down to the 22 that you need. Then the process is to have people work, preferably in silence, moving those sticky notes around on a wall over the different timelines. So you might have uh, one at 2018, one at five years out, one at 10 years out, then one at 15, then one at 20. If you're going out 30, then you stage it out differently. And then people put the sticky notes under the particular point in time where they think that headline might be read or heard or seen or spoken. Uh, and then you allow people to start moving them around and that's where the discussion emerges. So by doing it in science, the, the early parts of the process, both the, the brain writing of the headlines and then getting the content up on the wall and starting to move it around, people are forced to really consider what's in front of them uh, and they deliberate it rather than just pulling back um, or not engaging with the material at all. Um, and then from that, you're able to do uh, what um, I've heard a lot of people call the drunks walk. So moving from one point to the other, staggering across and trying to make a story out of it. My first experience of this was really wonderful because um, one of the things that got put up on the wall was cannibalism. And myself and a colleague laughed and we thought, that's got to be good. It's got to be ridiculous. By the end of the session uh, in the class that afternoon, uh, we'd managed to get six or seven different pathways to cannibalism based on what was on the wall. Um, plausible mostly, possible, <laughs> a couple of them entirely um, preferable. There was only one way we could really imagine it being a preferable future. Uh, but uh, it for us, it was a really good introduction to a process. And that's one of the reasons why I, I continue to use it frequently, because it 
it takes the tension out and um, of of what might be otherwise really bold statements, but it'll also allow, also allows people to work in a really compact way um, to start liberating their thoughts and and mm. and having them conjure up things that might seem a little bit crazy. I really love scenarios partly because of my background in design and enjoying the visual. It's giving people those real things to attach onto. If we can't do the experiential features work if we can't do some of the speculative design work that we might ideally do to give to challenge people's notions about what futures could be created then I find scenarios really useful for that but I have a hashtag that I use on Twitter depictions not predictions because I rail every time I see someone saying oh sci-fi got this wrong no no sci-fi was an image of a future it's a depiction not a prediction so I think that's where scenarios and, and harm and fan become really useful tools for me in the work that I do Integral's kind of the bedrock in many ways. Susan Cook Grosch's work uh, around the self, that's a almost a daily reminder of the different parts of who I am and where they've come from, when they emerge, becoming really aware of that those nascent questions that exist. Uh, look, I envy Joe Voris's ability to wrangle morphological analysis and one day I'll get there. But I, I think for me, it's really just been it, being able to bring these as tools into a typical design process or a strategy process or a strategic planning session and lift the game a little bit. So elevate the thinking into something that is less immediate and tactical and more around consequences. And I, I think I have to also acknowledge that I'm always down in that dark left quadrant. I'm the dystopian futurist and I, I've got a bit of a reputation for that. But I think it's because I'm always aware of consequences. It's not meant to sound an arrogant statement, just it it's the way I process stuff. Everything goes in my head. It's like, mm, am I overthinking it? No, it's, it's the next question around what does this really mean for us if we continue to make these kinds of choices? So I love being able to bring that into strategy. work with a, a large variety of people so I imagine that you'll be adjusting those tools quite a lot to to fit the situation that you're in but how do you move people into the into a space where they can think about a future that they haven't thought about before this is often where the design tools become useful uh, being able to use some of the the things that um, are used in design around imagining other people so crafting a persona um, and trying to imagine life for someone 20 years from now or 50 years from now. That forces people to think about a, a time zone or a, a timeline beyond them themselves and, and their own. But it is a challenge. I had a, a classic, I think, rookie mistake of um, working with a fairly ambitious group and letting them go out 100 years in harm and fan. And that was pretty silly at the time and I look back on it and what did you do that for where did it fit in play they were ambitious actually part of your role was to temper not the ambition but the means to um, to use the tools so think about the responsibility of, of what you're doing you should have been able to bring that back to um, a shorter time frame uh, and then allow them to go out 100 years doing something else and doing the work that needed to be done uh, it's always a challenge to ask people to think not just beyond themselves, but in those imagined spaces. And I know I rely a lot on uh, or reference a lot uh, the work that Jake Dunnigan and Stuart Candy have done in this area, particularly Jake's work around how we process images and where we retain images of futures. 
uh, and we um, and this again I think plays into Sir Helen Shaw's work and also what Scott Smith from Changest has talked about as some um, used features or flat pack features. So we're constantly um, looking at if we if we don't know how to stimulate ourselves using creativity with the design process, then we often just go back to the things that we've either been shown or that we think we've seen. And, and it's too easy to latch on to this is what the a future is going to be like. And when you've got a, a group that needs to shift, it's not just shifting the behaviour in the space around being a bit brave and, and being bold and, and coming up with the really ridiculous and risky ideas, but it's that internal shift as well. And I, I think something I've learnt through a lot of design facilitation and workshop work is you've got to hold the space for people to be brave. You really have to hold that in a way that allows people to take risks and say the really silly stuff without fear of not failure which is normally the fear of failure thing from design and innovation but without fear of of letting that go and actually saying it and making it public i was in a workshop last week with a team from the sensible cities lab at mit and it was interesting how we came up against the same kinds of challenges so we were looking at working on an area of Melbourne 30 to 50 years from now and the challenges that we have in foresight work and design are often the same around those imagined futures um, and we came up against the same blocks within the with individuals about their capacity to see beyond themselves so we went back to the tried and true description of the the, the space or place um, what might it be like um, and also the people who are going to be living there and engaging there what might life be like for them, that allowed people to move out a little bit more. Are there any other approaches that you've found incredibly successful in the work that you've done, Bridget? Actually, yes. Um, there's a litany of tools. Mm. There are things that I use frequently because they're easily deployed, they're easily grasped, and they're relatively flexible in the way that they're used. I tend to do a little bit of Andy Hines' stealth foresight, so even if it's not a foresight space or, or a foresight unit or um, an exercise in foresight that I'm involved in. Once we start talking about PEST and PESL as a framework for capturing external constraints or forces, I always ask that we use steeple instead or V-steep because once you start talking about values and ethics, you're taking people out beyond themselves and starting to think about others and not just people. Uh, so I find that a really good one. Uh, and I've got a number of past students who now insist on using steeple in their work or v-steep in their work which is great <laughs> um, the other uh, couple of tools I, I really enjoy are three horizons of course not the McKinsey version uh, we always get that with students they'll often say oh yeah I know three horizons and they know the McKinsey version not Bill Sharps um, I find that a really elegant way of uh, framing change uh, and giving a space for, for, for change and that kind of mucky, messy, grey, fuzzy area to be acknowledged and, and held. And it, it, it gives it a sense that it's being contained and identified, even if it does morph all over the place. People have it in front of them. And I, I believe also it sets up an expectation that that, that muckiness is, that fuzziness is, that really dense ambiguity um, is is going to be there, but they can see beyond it. So I think it's quite a hopeful tool as well because it allows people to know that all of this stuff is kind of happening. Uh, and I've had a couple of people say if they use that more in change management in organisations, that might be better. So actually take people out to the third horizon. 
before you even throw them into the change management process. And I mean the people who are working in an organisation, not just the teams who are doing the planning and designing the communications, actually let people know really vividly about that space that they're moving towards and that this bit in the middle is there and, and being held safely for them. I like Jose Ramos's tools around foresight action process and transition design, which is... I suppose grounded in design as a theory. It's a theory that's been evolved by Terry Irwin, Gideon Kossoff and Cameron Tonkinwise, who were working together at CMU, Carnegie Mellon University. Cameron Tonkinwise is now in Australia, which is great because we can share the knowledge. I've been using uh, transition design as a, a theory or a, probably not a framework, but as a, some theory and thinking uh, since about 2013, 2014, when I first came across his writing. And it, it establishes a frame for design to be a means to transition to alternative futures. And it's connected to the Transition Towns Network, which is really strong in, in Europe. Uh, we have some emerging practice around transition networks here. And that has been fully formed as a, um, a unit at CMU. And we bring a lot of that work into the, the units that uh, I teach at Swinburne. It's important that we look at design from a different perspective. And this is really looking at design as a holistic practice in the same way that futures is a more holistic practice. One of the things I find really useful, whether it's a class setting, so with undergrad or postgraduate students, or whether it's in a workshop or a facilitation, is asking people, you know, what is this about in 30 years? And it's really easy to just you know, start imagining, well, you know, it could be this, it could be amazing, it could be shiny, it could be this, you know, technocentric or this really, you know, pastoral future. But giving people something to start from within themselves often helps. I've done it a lot with undergrad students where you ask them to think about designing for 30 years from now in the conditions of 30 years from now and they kind of get a bit bamboozled and then they just continue to produce this a bit of business as usual but 30 years out and what I ask them to do is well start by imagining yourself 30 years from now and when they do that they suddenly realize that they're 52 and then they realize that oh no, that's how old my parents are. Oh, I'm going to have a mortgage, or maybe not. I'm going to maybe have kids. Oh no. And so they start to personalise it in a way that becomes almost visceral. And then they can start to design for that future that's been depicted or start imagining the future that they're, they're going to create. Right. So what you're describing is a process of connecting to that person in the future and then hopefully opening up to the fact that when they're doing their strategy in their organisation or whatever, they will always think of that person from the future generations. Yes. yes. That voice of the future that often isn't in the room when the discussion happens. It's mm. one of the things I find an ongoing frustration We'll, we'll talk about designing things for 30 years from now and the room will be full of people my age and older. I'm 50. And that, that's not an indictment on, on age. It's uh, people who haven't born yet are not being represented in this discussion and we're not considering them. And, and as part of that same MIT workshop, the Sensible Cities workshop I was involved with, it was great when one group brought in the voice of the future. So they had the image of a crawling infant included in their narrative because this person might be living there in 30 years when they've grown up. I was really happy to see that. Bridget, people are very interested 
to find out what futurists themselves are seeing. I'm wondering, when you look into the future yourself, you can choose your own time frame, yeah. of course, <laughs> but what, what are the forces that are, that are creating the future as you see it and what sort of future is emerging? I really struggle with these kinds of questions because there are so many possibilities. The things that I'm interested in is, is this notion of betterment and what we might be able to achieve in as short a time frame as possible and probably what we won't achieve in as short a time frame as we need and the tension between the two. I'm not fearful of the future. I'm hopeful of change. I look to the generations coming through so that if I, if I go out, say, 50 years to when I'm 100, uh, or even just 30 to when I'm 80. I don't think I'm going to be enjoying the life that my grandparents were enjoying in their 80s. I, I suspect I'll probably be around uh, when I'm around 100 years of age just because of longevity and health and, and those things. I don't know that it's going to be the most pleasant environment, though. I think that's the bit that I'm apprehensive about. And it, it always sounds like being really negative if you own this, but, yeah, I, I don't think a really hot, densely populated world with very tall concrete buildings draining the resources we have left is the kind of future that I want to want to be in and I I think the generation that that is being born now and you know, is even in their early teens they're very aware that the world's not a, a good place it's good in many ways but it's not leading towards maybe the most optimistic future for them and that they're they're profoundly aware of it so what do I see <laughs> um I unfortunately see this kind of long descent. I do think this is a thing that we will make our way through. I think in a much longer time frame, maybe 100, 150 years, we will have achieved that betterment, but it's a transition we have to move through. Uh, I was part of a, an experiential futures theatre piece, so individual performance around the future, and many people ask questions around this, and it was it's very confronting. Uh, if you scratch below to do the CLA thing, because uh, I love CLA too, but to, to scratch below that surface litany, there's actually a lot of people recognising that the next 20 to 30 years is catalytic and the decisions we make in the next 5 to 10 are going to drive a lot of what happens after that. And I think people are starting to see that that will actually really set the trajectory. <laughs> is there a word that <laughs> that's opposite to that? But that, that pathway um, through the the one, 100 or so after that, I really, it's not that I'm not positive about it. I'm, I'm, I'm hopeful that we will get through the other side. Uh, I believe we will. I don't see humankind disappearing quite that quickly, but I think we've put ourselves in a great place to destroy ourselves. Can you say a little bit more about that word betterment and what that means? It's a word I stole from Umer Hart. He wrote about betterment. Uh, he wrote a book called The New Capitalist Manifesto a number of years ago, and betterment was a, a concept that he started to embrace after that. So saying that, you know, we, we're not going to get rid of a lot of the systems, economic, political, social that we have, but we can look to betterment within ourselves as, as humans, as people, and that in achieving betterment, we can actually think about life beyond ourselves and our immediate needs, and that we can be more, not just empathetic, but actually more embracing of the needs and, and desires of others and that we don't have to be so greedy, that we can be respectful of difference in a way that acknowledges ourselves. What he talked about very much coming from the post-capitalist neoliberal or anti-neoliberal 
discourse that was emerging in the States then. But certainly, I think this notion of, of bettering ourselves is an interesting one. I don't know that we have a measure to compare ourselves to. So when if we talk about betterment, I immediately go to the Prime Directive in Star Trek. Um, mm. And <laughs> cliched as it is, it's the one that most people relate to. But it can be a guide for individual action or for personal motivation as well yeah, as the collective. Maybe. And I, I think it's really important to acknowledge that individual versus collective because mm. it shouldn't be versus. We are mm. individuals as, as part of a collective and we need to remember that. It's something that I'm always reminded of with the word individualist versus individualistic. Yeah, that tension between I want this, these are my needs, this is the kind of stuff I want, this is the, the future I imagine, versus, well, where does that level off with what everyone else around me wants? Because if we're all going off in different directions and there is no shared vision or no capacity for a shared anticipatory approach, then you've got nothing except a whole lot of people pulling in different directions, consuming resources at the rate that they want to. Bridget, there's a question that I think every foresight practitioner is asked at some point. What is a futurist and what is foresight? Another great question. And yes, we do get asked all the time. And particularly if you start saying I'm a professional futurist. I love the description or the term foresight practitioner. I think that's a really lovely one. Again, very elegant. To answer the question, it really depends on who's asking and perhaps why they're asking. If it's someone who has doubts around a futurist, then they might be confusing you with a futurologist. Uh, often my answer will come with a clear I am a professional futurist. I do have a degree. Uh, no, I don't do predictions. And it's got nothing to do with an art movement. Don't talk to me about futurism. And I'm definitely not doing futurology. The challenge is to articulate what foresight, strategic foresight, futures thinking is in terms that the person can relate to. So if it's someone who's asking about foresight practice, tools and so on, then I will talk about strategic foresight being the, the action science of futures thinking. That if you think of futures thinking as a set of theories, tools and academic discipline, that is ways of thinking about futures uh, and different approaches to that, including different methods and methodologies. Strategic foresight being how those things might be applied. Sometimes I'll distinguish between the theory and the tool. So anticipatory thinking or the discipline of anticipation and then talk about foresight tools being a way of building a capacity for anticipatory thinking into a context. Uh, for some people it's as simple as, I think a few people use this, um, helping people ask better questions about tomorrow, helping people think more long term, helping people ask better questions about what they might want futures to look like. I always have to make it relative to the context of the person and where their question might be coming from because sometimes it's coming from a place of uh, ridicule or fear and sometimes it can come from a place of great hope and inquiry mm. uh, but there's often a lot of scepticism around mm. futures. I once had someone say to me oh yeah I do a bit of that that future stuff I think I'm a bit futuristic and I said okay so you know, tell me about that that's really interesting and it was yeah a very short conversation mm -hmm. uh, oh it, essentially the person was entrenched within 
uh, a sense that futures was around the next five years of technology and the the next bright shiny thing and it was a short conversation because we stopped that and started talking about other stuff and it ended up being a a much deeper and slightly longer conversation she left with a reading list Mm. which is i suppose the academic in me (laughs) i like to set readings for people Bridget, you've told us that you've done a Master's in Women's Studies and I've heard you describe yourself as a feminist. I'd love to hear you speak about what it means to be a practitioner in the futures field and a feminist. Yeah, and thanks for acknowledging that. I I think it's problematic um, as feminism tends to be. It's not a label that I feel needs to be slapped on everything, but I wouldn't be sitting here if it wasn't for the legacy of first, second and third wave feminism. So I I studied it long enough and deeply enough and passionately enough to recognise that that needs to be acknowledged and therefore I think it needs to be paid more than lip service. Having said all of that though, there's issues with boxing stuff up. So yep, I'm a feminist. I have moments when I'm a radical feminist. I have moments when I'm a separatist feminist. I have moments when I, some people might say I'm an essentialist feminist. And one of the challenges is the boxing that goes on within and between feminisms and how that emerges through with and within futures practice and whether it needs to. There's potentially the the notion of the caring, respectful, matriarchal society, which kind of gets my hackles up around the nature versus nurture argument within essentialist feminism. There's the the cyber feminist work of um, people like Donna Haraway and Judy Washman, and I really enjoy that. Technology is often associated with the male domain and the privilege of the male domain, whereas the typewriter, which is technology, was assigned to the typing pool and the role of woman. So there's been this emerging tension between as technology evolves and and as futures emerge, do women end up remaining in those traditional roles that are associated with the female role? What is traditional femininity? And I think we're seeing an emergence of not necessarily new feminisms. Uh, Certainly intersectional feminism has generated a lot more discussion around the differences and the similarities between women around the world and there's still tension around whether intersectional feminism is is the 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 be-all and end-all is that the solution because there are still the radical feminists marxist feminists for, for want of you know the the boxes and the labels that i'm now quite deliberately using because people want to identify with their tribe their group they want to feel like this is something that they believe in and are part of and so feminism whilst it might be considered a broader canon which is where I think there is a similarity with Futures work because it is broad. It, it, it sits across a lot of things. They're all reasons why I make a claim and very clear about being a feminist. I also think that we need more men to say, well, yes, I'm a feminist too, because that's the, the malingering misunderstanding around feminism, that it privileges women over men and that it's linked to biological sex and that gender fluidity is so complicated that it just muddies the waters even further whereas actually we just need people to own up to equality across the sexes across the genders no matter how sexes or how many sexes or genders we decide or agree that there are have we got a long way to go in the futures field 
yeah, I, I, I don't think so much in the futures field. I enjoy the fact that there are so many women studying futures. Ross Dawson has publicly declared they're the top female futurists and acknowledged that the futures domain seems to be dominated by male names and, and, and masculine practice um, and so has created this list of the, the top female futurists around the world. And I suspect that it, it goes back to maybe when I was studying that there's a lot more women exploring alternative routes through their education but yet a lot of people are students going into practice but you've still got lots of men teaching and in the senior positions and that's not uh, and, and meant as a, an accusation or anything like that in simply that you've got men in teaching positions and women in learning positions. Women are then going into roles of leading and teaching in their foresight practice but not necessarily in those visible labelled roles of you know, here is the futurist as expert, here is the futurist as, as academic, here is the futurist as explorer. Those roles are typically attached to a male name. That's something that will shift. And I'm not saying it's bad because I've been taught by great people, male and female, and I, I couldn't couldn't question anything that I've been taught. So I think that goes back to what I was saying about the reason I'm here being able to do this is because of the women who went before me. But the other thing is, do I have hope? I do, but I don't have any, I don't have much hope in the short term. It's taken us how many hundred years to get to where we are now? It's taken us how many thousands of years to get where we are now? And this is something that came up when I saw Blade Runner 2049. There were people who'd critiqued it for the depictions of sex and gender and the, the role of women and um, the, the characters, the female characters in that movie. And I kept thinking, well, you know, it's 20-whatever. This is 30-ish years away. It's taken us since when to get the vote? We still have parts of the world that don't have parental leave. So if we've got a fairly negative depiction of women and gender roles in the original movie, Blade Runner, and we go out 30 or so years, I don't think it's going to have changed that much. So I found that the, the roles of women or the depictions of, of men and women and the other non-binary representations in both those movies to be I felt that maybe normative, but I felt them to be completely appropriate. It didn't make me, it actually maybe grounded it and made it seem more real and palpable because I didn't expect that things were going to have changed much. I think there's a negative pathway that emerges very clearly in Blade Runner 2049, but there's the possibility for that to be averted. But just not anytime soon. Bridget, it's been wonderful to have you as part of FuturePod. Thank you so much for coming in and sharing your experience with the audience and congratulations on all your successes. Thank you very much. It's been a pleasure to be here and I am just grateful to have been part of the Futures community and to have been welcomed into it and embraced into it and particularly to be asked to be here contributing to this. So thank you and thank you to everyone. This has been another production from FuturePod. FuturePod is a not-for-profit venture. We exist through the generosity of our supporters. If you would like to support FuturePod, 
go to the Patreon link on our website. Thank you for listening. Remember to follow us on Instagram and Facebook. This is Mendy Yuri saying goodbye for now.